So as Pastor Richard mentioned just a few minutes ago, I did recently have a birthday. Thank you for mentioning that again to everyone. He told me recently, he said, boy, you are never going to let that go. But it's only been a month, so give it time. And soon, soon. Uh, but every, every birthday, uh, I, try and, I try and take some time to thank the Lord for the years that he's blessed me with. Try and take some time to dedicate the next year to him. And every birthday, I also take a little bit of time to think about my younger brother's best friend growing up. And his best friend's name was Zach. I've shared some stories about Zach here in the past. You see, Zach only lived for 15 years before the Lord called him home. So as the years go by, I find myself thinking things like, I can't believe that I've, I've lived more than twice the number of years that Zach ever had. And I start to think about him. I start to think about those, those memories of the good times that we all had together. And there are a lot of things that remind me of him. For a number of years after he passed away, apparently Zach's mom kept his cell phone active because I'd call it from time to time. And I knew others would too. And it'd, it'd go to voicemail and you could hear Zach say, hey, this is Zach. Leave me a message and I'll get you right back. And it was, it was cool to be able to remember his voice that way. Or I'll go to the store and I'll, I'll see things that remind me of him. I'll see some of those snacks that we all ate the last time we were together. And boy, were they nasty. But I'll think about those good times. Or I'll hear a song that he used to like. Or I'll see the number 12 on a basketball jersey like he used to wear. And these things will remind me of who he was as a teenager, as a teammate, and as a friend. You see, there are plenty of pictures that we have of Zach. But those, those aren't what help me remember him most. No, it's, it's the memories that do that. To me, it's the things that Zach said and did. Those are some of the best pictures of who he was. And this week, I was thinking about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as I did, I thought of the many pictures that have been drawn, painted, and created over the years of him. You know the ones that I'm talking about. Like the famous ones of the pale-skinned, blue-eyed Jesus. Which is certainly not an accurate description and depiction of what he would have looked like. He likely had darker hair, darker eyes, a darker complexion than he is typically depicted with. But, you know, that's the thing. We don't know exactly what Jesus looked like, and that's okay. That's okay, because the greater picture that we have is the record of those things that he said and did. These things give us a great picture of our Lord and Savior. These are how we will truly know him until the day comes in eternity when we see him face to face. And until then... We have from Jesus a couple of things in the church that serve as continual reminders of what Jesus did for us. And these things point to who Jesus is. They point to his love. They point to his redemptive work. And these two things are baptism and communion, or the Lord's Supper. All right? Baptism and communion. We're going to celebrate one of these today before we leave together. But that's the thing. I, I don't want these things, baptism and communion, I don't want them to just be things that we do here because that's what churches do. I don't want us to just move through the motions of these things as believers. I want us to understand why we believe in baptism and communion, church. And I pray that as we do understand that, that we will also see that these things give us a real and greater picture of who Jesus is. So that we would take them seriously. So that we would approach these things 
with joy. So that's what we're going to look at together this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of the Bibles here in the sanctuary under the seat in front of you. If you'd like to use one of those, you can turn to page 811. Page 811, Matthew chapter 28. We're going to start in verse 18. And what we are about to read here in Matthew 28 takes place after Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and then powerfully rose from the dead. Our resurrected Savior then appeared to a number of his followers, and before he ascended to heaven, this is what we find. Matthew 28, verse 18, says this. It says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. All right, we'll stop right there. These commands from Jesus are often referred to as the great Commission. Last Sunday, our missions leader, who was smiling at me as soon as I said Matthew 28, our missions leader, CJ, shared with us about the Great Commission a little bit last Sunday, if you were down there at the potluck. And CJ mentioned that as Baptists, we are always talking about the Great Commission. And boy, is he right. In fact, if you go to the Southern Baptist Convention's website today, you'll see on the main page, in big, bold letter, we are Great Commission Baptists. The Great Commission is important. It is important. And this is the great mission that Jesus has charged his followers with. We are to make disciples. That means that we are to share the gospel with others. So that through faith in Jesus as their Savior, they can become his followers. They can become his disciples. And those followers are to be baptized and taught the teachings of Jesus Christ so they can live a life of obedience to him. So, the very basic thing, why, why do we believe in baptism? It's because Jesus commanded that every believer be baptized. That's why we believe in baptism. See, that means that baptism is about obedience to Jesus. And I want us to listen to the order of what Jesus said. He said, make disciples baptizing them. Jesus said to baptize his disciples. This is important. Because what this tells us is that baptism doesn't come before salvation. It's not a part of our salvation. No, salvation comes before baptism. That means that it matters when you get baptized in your life. It matters when you do. Okay? If you were baptized as a baby, or as a child, or even as an adult, and then later you gave your life to Jesus Christ, then you need to go and be baptized again. You need to be baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ. Anything before that was just you getting wet. Baptism is for disciples. This is the command from Jesus. And this has always been the pattern in the church. Let me show you what I mean. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. If you're using one of those Bibles here in the sanctuary, that'd be page 884. Acts chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 38. It says, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. All right, go ahead and stop right there. Now, some people will take this passage and they'll say, aha, they'll say, look, baptism is a part of salvation. They'll say it says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. But is that true? Is baptism a part of salvation? And if that's true, then, then how do we understand Ephesians chapter 2? Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9 tells us that we've been saved by grace through faith and not by works so that no one can boast. But the Bible says it's faith in Jesus that saves us. It's not a work. It's not something we do like getting baptized. It's not a part of salvation. If baptism is a part of salvation, then, then did, Jesus, did Jesus lie to the thief on the cross? Because he told the thief on the cross, he said, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The thief was never baptized after putting his faith in Jesus. Would you Jesus make an exception for that man? Well, how could he? The Bible says in Romans chapter 2 that God doesn't show favoritism. So then we have to ask, was the Bible contradicting itself? No. What we're seeing in Acts chapter 2 is the pattern. And the pattern from the beginning of the church was that when someone was saved, they were immediately baptized. That's the pattern. Why? Because it's the first step of obedience for the Christian. The idea of an unbaptized believer in the early church just wasn't heard of. To be a follower of Jesus was to be baptized. People got saved by going to Jesus with repentant hearts of faith, and then they were baptized right away in obedience to the command of Jesus. And when they did that, they were publicly declaring themselves to be followers of Jesus. This is why we often do baptism in public settings. It's because in doing so, the Christian declares... I belong to Jesus. He is mine, and I am His. Now, many Christians are scared of this public act. And I understand the intimidation of standing in front of people. I do. But we also need to recognize that far more Christians have faced far greater fears in baptism, and we should allow them to be examples to us. In many times since the church began, identification with Jesus has brought persecution to believers. Even in Acts chapter 2, what we just read, we're reading about individuals who risked being excluded from life in the temple for following Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And today there are many countries where faith in Jesus and public declarations of that faith, like baptism, those are dangerous. It could be deadly for believers. Let me give you an example. Uh, just a few years ago, there was a story that came out about 16 believers, 16 new Christians in Syria who wanted to get baptized. That's dangerous. Because in Syria, being a follower of Jesus, well, that can cost you your friends, your family, your job, your life. So they're very careful when and where they do baptism there. But these 16 Christians were determined. Jesus said to be baptized, they were going to be baptized. And on the day that they were baptized, when the final one of those believers was finally baptized, they all came together and they sang that great Christian song, I have decided to follow Jesus. A song I'm sure a lot of us here are familiar with. In that song, we are reminded that for the believer, there ought to be no turning back. 
Even if no one goes with us, we are going to continue to follow the Lord. The world's behind us. The cross is before us. There is no turning back. And for those Syrian believers, the threat of persecution was not going to keep them from obedience. Or I think about the story of a man many years ago. There was a jungle native who heard the gospel from a missionary who came to his tribe. That man put his faith in Jesus like several others did. Well, and so the missionary took those new believers to the middle of the river to baptize them. And the missionary was using a spear to steady himself in the current because it was pretty rough, those waters. And without realizing it, the missionary stabbed the foot of this new believer. But this new Christian didn't say anything, didn't flinch, didn't make a sound. After the baptism, they got out of the water and people discovered the injury. And they asked him, they said, why didn't you say anything? Oh, and that dear Christian said, I just thought it was part of the ceremony. But you know what? Pain was not going to keep that Christian from obedience. And sadly today, it's much lesser fears than pain and persecution and death that keep many Christians in this free country of ours from being obediently baptized. So one question that I need to ask this morning is, if you are here and Jesus is your Savior, but you have not been baptized since making that decision, The question is, what is holding you back? And I'm going to challenge you to ask yourself, whatever that is, is it a worthy thing that is keeping you from obedience? Baptism is about obedience. It's about declaring our allegiance to Jesus. And there's something else that makes it really special that I want us to see this morning. If you're following along, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. If you're using one of those Bibles here in the sanctuary, turn to page 915. Page 915, Romans chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 3. Paul is writing to the believers in Rome, and he says this. He says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Here's the thing. When we baptize believers, there's a reason that we put you all the way in the water and then bring you up. There's a reason for that. And one of the reasons that we baptize this way is because baptism, it's a symbol, it's a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So when we go down, we are buried in the water. It's a symbol of Jesus' burial after his death on the cross. And we come up out of the water. It's a symbol of Jesus rising from the dead. In this way, Christians, we are identifying with our Savior who died for our sins and rose from the dead. In this way, we are also declaring that we have died to our old way of life And we have been made new in Jesus Christ. 
You see, what I want all of us to understand is that baptism is a picture of what Jesus did to secure our salvation. Every time, church, every time we are blessed to witness a baptism, we should rejoice. We should rejoice for that believer who's getting baptized. And we should also be in awe as we are reminded of the powerful resurrection of our Savior from the dead. Death and Satan couldn't defeat Jesus. The grave couldn't hold him. And because he lives, we know that we too will live with him forever. If you want a good picture of the power, the greatness, and the glory of our Savior, don't look to the paintings of men. Look to baptism. It's a picture of how great our God is. And so is communion. If you're following along, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. If you're using one of those Bibles here, that's page 930. I promise this is the last place I'll make you turn to. Page 930, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 23. Paul writes this. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Keep your place right there in 1 Corinthians 11 for a minute. When Jesus instituted communion with his disciples, he told them to do this in remembrance of him. Do this pretty straightforward as a command. Why do we believe in communion? Because Jesus commanded that his followers do this, that we take communion together. Why? Why is this something that we do? It's to remember what Jesus did for us. As I have said before, God's people have a long history of being forgetful. Let me give you a couple examples. Whenever I read In the Old Testament, things like the Israelites wandering in the wilderness as they followed Moses, I often shake my head at the number of times they start to complain. I think to myself, would you guys just forget what God has already done? They would say things like, Moses, it would be better if we died in Egypt. We had it better in Egypt, Moses. Were you you slaves? You had it better? Or they'll say, what, Moses, you bring us out here so that we could die of thirst? Die of thirst? God's raining manna down from heaven, bringing quail to these people. They think he's going to let them go thirsty? What, do they forget everything that God has done? And it's not just the wandering Israelites. You fast forward to the New Testament. And one of the stories that always gets me as I'm I'm reading is Jesus. He ministers to this crowd, over 4,000 people. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, these people are hungry. And the disciples say, what? How are we going to feed all these people? Jesus, where are we going to get the bread for this? That would be a reasonable question, except Jesus had already fed over 5,000 people. So I read the story and I think to myself, guys, what do you think is going to happen? How do you think this is going to go down? Do you not remember what Jesus has done? But here's the thing. As I read these stories, I start to look at my own life. And I have to shake my head because how many times... In my life, 
do I cry out to God and I say, Lord, what am I supposed to do in this situation? You know, how am I, where, where's the solution going to come from? God, when's the resolution going to come? What's going to happen? Are you even with me? And then I feel God's Spirit convict me and say, what are you talking about, Andrew? Am I going to be with you? Would you not remember all the ways that I've been with you? All your situations that I've seen you through? Do you not remember all the ways that I've taken care of you, that I've provided for you? You're asking if I'm going to be with you? Look, maybe this doesn't apply to you, but I, I read about the Israelites, I read about the disciples, and I realize that I'm a lot more like them than I think. As God's people, we are forgetful sometimes. And believers, something that we must never forget is the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And communion serves as one of those reminders. This is why taking communion is not just a command, it's also always been a pattern in the church. Let's look again at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at verse 26. Paul continues and he says, Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we are more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. A couple things that I want to point out that are pretty clear from what Paul's writing to the Corinthian believers. First, that communion was clearly a regular part of worship in the early church. Remembering the Lord's sacrifice this way was a pattern among those early Christians. Keep that in mind. And the second thing is that the Corinthians clearly were not taking communion well. They become rather lax in how they were treating the Lord's Supper. They weren't taking it with proper hearts towards God or in unity with one another. Let that be a warning to us, believers. Let's always approach communion the right way. If you aren't walking right with the Lord, believer, if you're not living in unity with the body of Christ, your family of believers, then getting your heart right this morning is more important than you taking communion this morning. Please keep that in mind. We need to examine ourselves. But the other thing I want us to consider is that Paul, Paul wrote this 20 to 30 years after the death of Jesus Christ. It's about how long it had been. Yet we find that these early Christians were faithful to remember what Jesus did. And they weren't living long after Jesus did it. If communion was important for these believers living just a handful of years after Christ's death, then surely those of us living 2,000 years later should make it a priority in our lives, remembering what the Lord has done for us. It was the pattern then, and it ought to be the pattern now. It was close to the hearts of believers then, it ought to be close to our hearts now, believers. Sadly, for a lot of Christians, communion, that's the farthest thing from our minds. Sadly, for some Christians, Christ's sacrifice is the farthest thing from our minds day by day. A couple weeks ago, I shared the story of Michael Collins. Some of you might remember it. Michael Collins was the astronaut who 
floated, orbited around the moon while Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong became the first men to walk on the surface of the moon. Well, while Neil Collins floated off into the silence of space, something else was happening, and I want to share this with you. Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong were sitting on the surface of the moon in the lunar module, and they had to wait a little while inside the module. They, they were waiting for mission and control to give them the go-ahead to step outside. And while they were sitting inside waiting, Buzz Aldrin sent a message back to Earth. And what he did was he encouraged people to give thanks in their own way for this momentous occasion that was taking place. Then Buzz Aldrin read from the Bible and proceeded to take communion. He brought some of the elements of communion with him, took communion right there before they stepped out of the lunar module. In fact, as one report noted, the elements of communion, these were the first foods ever poured or eaten on the surface of the moon. Now, not surprisingly, I suppose, Aldrin was censored by NASA. The taking of communion was not broadcast out of fear of some sort of backlash. But Buzz Aldrin realized that the best way he could give thanks to God in that moment was by taking communion, then and there. And the reason that I share this story is because when I first read it, just being honest, I thought to myself, how many of us would think to take communion on the moon? With all the things going on, would think to ourselves, you know what, I'm going I'm to take communion right, right here, right now. How many of us would think to do that? Of course, how many of us think about taking communion at all? I mean, how many of us think about it in our day-to-day -day lives, except when we show up at church and someone says, this is the day that we're going to do it? Let's go beyond that. I mean, how many of us spend time day-to-day -day thinking about the Lord's sacrifice for us? Communion should be near and dear to the hearts of believers, not because it gives us some sort of special grace, but because it reminds us of God's grace to us. It's a picture of what Jesus has done. You see, when we take communion, when we eat that little cracker, wafer, that piece of bread, when we take that, it represents the body of Jesus. Not long after instituting this with his disciples, Jesus was arrested. He was taken from one sham trial to the next, where he was mocked and he was blasphemed. And the abuse began that night as he was spit on, punched, slapped, beat on the head with a reed, brutally whipped, a crown of thorns was pushed down and buried into his skull. Then, of course, finally he was put on the cross where nails were driven through his wrists and his feet. And as he gave his body up to be tortured in this way, he, of course, shed his blood. Because as the Bible is very clear, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Because the life is in the blood, and the consequence for our sin is death. And Jesus took that for us. So every time we take communion, we are reminded of everything that our Savior went through for us believers. Each drop of blood that he shed each moment of excruciating pain that his body endured. And we should be filled with wonder at the grace, the mercy, the love, the boldness, power, and courage of our Lord Jesus Christ. Communion should result in our rejoicing over what he did for us. And it should so impact us that it becomes a part of our proclamation to the world of the Lord's sacrifice until he returns. Every time we take communion, we should want to run out these doors and tell somebody what Jesus did for us and for them.
Believers, we need to understand the importance of baptism and communion so that we're not just moving through the motions. Why do we partake in these two things? That's because Jesus commanded us to. But you know the thing I love is that Jesus, his commands are never without a purpose. These are reminders of our faith, reminders of God's grace, part of declaring our faith. They are also two of the greatest pictures that we have of our Savior. If you want to know what our Savior looks like, it's not the paintings of men they are going to make that the most clear. It's the actions of our Savior. So every time we witness baptism, every time we take communion like we're going to this morning, let's approach these things with a heart of joy and a heart of worship, church. Because the truth this morning is that baptism and communion are part of God's grace to help us remember how we were saved. They're part of God's grace to help us remember how we were saved. So let's take them seriously in our lives and let's approach them with joy every time that we get to be a part of these things. In a moment, we're going to do that by taking communion. But first, if you're here and Jesus is not your Savior, you've never gone in for the forgiveness of your sins, you never put your faith in Him as your Savior, you don't know for sure that at the end of this life, God is going to welcome you into heaven with open arms. If that's you today, friend, I want you to understand all these things that Jesus did, all that pain that he went through, all the blood that he shed, that was for you. See, the Bible's very clear that our sins, all those bad things that we do, like when we lie and cheat and steal and lust and take God's name in vain, on and on that list goes, these things, well, these things are separating us from God. And the just punishment for them is to be separated forever from God after this life in a place called hell. And we can't make up for these things. No amount of good works, no amount of going to church. It's pretty hopeless for us. But that's why Jesus came. And his love for us, Jesus came. He lived a perfect life, the thing we can't do. And because of that, he was able to step in and be our substitute. He died to take the pain, the punishment, the wrath that we deserve for sin. And then Jesus powerfully rose from the dead. And he stands in heaven right now, waiting to forgive you of all your sins, to rescue you from the penalty of hell, and to give you eternal life, the guarantee that when this life is over, you will be with him forever. And if you have never given your life to Jesus, friend, please know that the Bible is very clear in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's about putting your faith in Jesus and in what he did for you. If you have never done that, we want to give you the chance to do that before you leave. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I I pray if there's anyone here right now who's never made that decision, never given their life to Jesus Christ, that right now, where they're sitting, if they're ready to change that, that they would go to you in prayer. And that as they pray, they would admit to you that they understand that they are a sinner but that they believe that Jesus did die on the cross for them. They believe he didn't stay in the grave, but that he rose from the dead. I pray that individual would go to you for forgiveness, that they would give their life to you. I pray if there's anyone here who has questions about that, that they would come and find me in a few minutes, that they would find someone before they leave that they could talk to and pray with about these things. And Father, for those of us who have made that decision,
who have given our lives to Jesus Christ. Help us never to forget the sacrifice of our Savior. Let it be on the forefront of our minds each and every day. I pray that every day that we wake up, we would be in awe of your grace and your mercy and your love towards us. That we wouldn't be able to help but look for people that we could share that with. And that every time we see a believer obediently follow through in baptism, we would rejoice. That every time we get to take communion as a church, we would rejoice as we remember the great things that our Lord has done for us. And help our rejoicing not to stop in this place, but to continue when we leave. So that we would live in a way that pleases you. So that we would tell people about what Jesus did for them. So that we would bring you glory and honor. Father, we love you. But you proved long ago when you sent your son that you love us more. And as we take communion, help us to remember that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.